Hello and welcome to Lunchtime Live. I am Eileen Campbell-Reed and I'm your host for 3-Minute Ministry Mentor. Uh, welcome to our Lunchtime event and I have Dr. Angela Parker uh, talking with us today. Welcome, Dr. Parker. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this wonderful conversation and this opportunity to, to be with you for this Lunchtime yes. Live. Thank you. Indeed. Thank you. Well, we we're, I'm going to give her a proper introduction in a minute when a few more people have joined us and uh, we can tell them all about her uh, credentials and uh, achievements. Um, but, but, but this is Lunchtime Live. So we try to start every time with a little bit of talk about lunch. So what are you having for lunch today, uh, Angela Parker? <laughs> yes. Uh, leftover Chinese food, specifically mm. beef and broccoli. <laughs> oh, yum. Love yes. the broccoli. Yeah. I'm I not, a, I'm a vegetarian, but I love Chinese food mm -hmm. and I love mm -hmm. broccoli. So yes. You got me in. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Good. <laughs> My leftovers today are going to be um, from a new recipe I tried last night, a new Wonderful. pasta and a uh, it has broccoli and kale roasted mm, on the yes. side. So I'm going to reheat that today. That's going to mm -hmm. be my lunch. Um, I also wondered about uh, if you may, if you are choosing and if you want to talk about it or not uh, to do a any kind of a Lenten change to your diet. Is that something yes. that is important to you or that you maybe done in the past? Um, I've done in the past and in the past I've done a Daniel fast where I have completely wow taken away fried foods and had vegetables and more oats and not necessarily had any kind of meat. So I yeah. haven't done that this year, but I really enjoyed that in past years. I'm also yeah. trying to do a lot of heavier weight training. So that's why I was like, I kind of want my meat. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pescatarian actually. I eat mm -hmm, fish. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so uh, I was thinking about Lenten practices and how many people, um, you know, give up meat and in the past and, yes, and uh, yes. eat fish, especially mm -hmm. during Lent. And so I was remembering back to my a childhood memory came to mind. I thought it'd be fun to share. My grandparents, um, we would go visit them in Louisville, Kentucky, which is one mm -hmm. of those cities that's interestingly both um, kind of Northern and kind of Southern. Right. And, yes. uh, there are a lot of Catholics in Louisville. And so uh, fish fries are a big thing. And during oh. Lent, of course, fish fries are yes. big on Fridays. And and then they go, the fish fry on Friday thing just goes on through the year. And <laughs> right. so we would go up to visit and my grandfather would go over to either on Friday or Saturday to the fish place where they just fried those two days a week. And he'd bring home these wonderful um, bags of fish and chips. And they mm. were so delicious. Yes. I don't know what kind of fish it was, some kind of a white, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. like that a meteor kind of fish. And yes. um, gosh, this just takes me back to the memories <laughs> of having that. And the funny thing as a kid, they would wrap it up in brand new, unused um, dog food and cat food bags. They really? could buy them really inexpensively and they have like multiple layers. So they're good um, insulators. Right. And right. so the fish always came in these bags that we just laugh because they have dog food or cat food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was just because they could put, instead of, you know, like in London, they put it in the newspaper. Like exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. the same concept only these bags. Anyway, it's Louisville. That, that was Louisville's, Louisville's way of doing it. That's right. 
uh, and I know a lot of folks like to, to make changes to their diet as a part of their Lenten yes. practice. Um, mm -hmm. This year, we have a Lenten practice we want to invite people to consider participating in. Mm. Picturing pastoral imagination is an opportunity for uh, folks to reflect on ministry as a practice and uh, and as a spiritual practice. And so we have uh, themes for every day during Lent. And already we're having a lot of engagement, a lot of, um, I will say, fun with people um, sharing their pictures, just a simple photo each day about uh, what it means to them to be in ministry and what it means to uh, imagine, uh, to lean into their own imagination about ministry, their pastoral imagination. And uh, we're loving how that's going. So just wanted to remind people it's never too late to be part of that, uh, that initiative if, if they would mm -hmm. like. Yeah. Well, uh, Angela Parker, we are so delighted that you are with us today. And uh, I want to give folks who are watching a, a more, careful introduction. Uh, Dr. Parker is the Assistant Professor of New Testament and Greek at Mercer University's McAvee School of Theology. Uh, that's in Atlanta, Georgia, and she received her BA from Shaw University, her MTS from Duke Divinity School, which she talks about a little bit in her book, and uh, her PhD, which she also talks about in her book, um, from uh, in Bible, and Bible Culture and Hermeneutics from mm -hmm. Chicago Theological Seminary. Uh, she's also won some awards for her writing, uh, and this is her first major book. Uh, it is called If God Still Breathes, Why Can't I? Black Lives Matter and Biblical Authority. And I want to give you just a look at that cover. Uh, I, I was wondering, uh, Angela, if you could tell us about how the, the cover was chosen for your book, because I was wondering about that. and I forgot to ask you in advance, but I'm guessing that you might have a story about that. <laughs> <laughs> so the story behind it is that I conceptualized a, a figure that looked both masculine and feminine because we have so many black and brown folks, both male and female, who are just experiencing the horrific modern day lynching as a, in, involved in militarized police violence. So I think about... Breonna Taylor, but I also think about Michael Brown and Ferguson. And I also think about Philando Castile. I still think about Eric Garner and Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland. And the artist just took that concept and provided this sketch for me. And so Erdman's was really good and helpful with finding an artist to be able to put this together to show that, that almost blending of, you know, you're looking at a brown body, but Black Lives Mattering encompasses so many different identities. And I just wanted to get that, that view of varying identities in the cover. Thank you. Yes, it, it really does capture. And I'm, I'm so, um, uh, it's thrilling to hear that it was original art um, mm -hmm. commissioned to, to, yes. for the cover of the book. Yes. It's really very, I, I feel like when I look at it, I certainly am looking, is it screen? Is it, mm -hmm. it almost looks like a cage. Uh, right. over the person. And that's yes. just so evocative of what you're writing about. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, we want to, we want to dive right into um, uh, the book and we want to hear about um, 
this project. And I'd, I'd like to just actually start with a question that you actually say you ask mm -hmm. your students. I believe yes. you ask your students every mm -hmm. time you, you start a class, which is what is your relationship uh, to the Bible and how has that changed across time? Yes, I always have had a deep love for the Bible. So even as a child, just beginning to read and beginning to just take in everything that my own parents had modeled for me regarding reading the Bible and taking it seriously in our lives. I talk about growing up Black Baptist, and as a Black Baptist, we hold the authority of the Bible in high regard. And so I still have this high regard for the Bible, but one thing that I've discovered over my lifetime was that there were certain ways that other people who had authoritarian ideas over me used the Bible as the tool to almost squash the way I thought about the authority of the Bible. Mm -hmm. When I remember mm -hmm. reading Bible as from an eight-year-old child until 20s, into my 20s, reading the biblical text sparked within me through the spirit that God had gifted me in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And those giftings were coming out from age eight, in, even into my twenties. Mm -hmm. And when I was trying to exercise those gifts in my local church, I realized that the folks who had authority over me or had what I would call more authoritarian ideals over me, yeah. would try to squash what I knew that the spirit had revealed to me. And so I had to begin to wrestle with, I know what God's calling me to do, but the people around me say that that could not be possible. So I had to begin to wrestle with, well, how do I understand then the Bible and the spirit speaking to me as an authority in my life versus the ways that authoritarian figures were using the Bible over me? And yeah. so there's still that loving relationship, that that deep respect, that deep wrestling, that deep commitment to engaging Bible, just not engaging the authoritarian readings that people used over me. Yeah, that says it well. I, having also grown up Baptist uh, mm -hmm. and Southern Baptist and yes. uh, no longer being Southern Baptist now, but um, being uh uh, still connected with the deep roots of the Baptist tradition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think these questions about authority and scripture are just always lively in our in our communities as Baptists, and um, it's it's a it's kind of messy. Um, yes. But like you, I really relate to that sense of the importance of the Bible, the stories, mm -hmm. and their power to pull into my life important things, uh, yes. important ideas, important mm -hmm. um, ways of living, but not interested at all in having it used like a bludgeoning tool. Exactly. You know, mm -hmm. To keep me mm -hmm. in my place when I was growing up too. I really relate <laughs> to what you're saying. About um, and it's fascinating because there's a whole new generation of, of students whom I'm encountering who have similar experiences and that's their wrestling as they're entering seminary spaces. So it would behoove me, I have to constantly ask that question and slowly allow their own understandings of Bible to be 
slightly deconstructed and then reconstructed. And I know a lot of us hate the deconstruction word, but I never deconstruct into nothing. There's always a reconstruction. And I often use my own life as the example or one example of reconstruction. Yeah, that's uh, such, that's the the work of the teacher, the theological Mm -hmm. teacher (laughs) to uh, deconstruct (laughs) and then reconstruct, help give tools so that people Mm -hmm. can do both. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want to share this quote that uh, I'm going to put it on the screen that you uh, sort of summarized what, in a way, a direction of the book here. This book examines inerrancy and infallibility as tools of white supremacist authoritarianism. There it is. That's what we were saying. <laughs> uh, that limit humanity's capacity to fully experience God's breath in the biblical text. Um, I want to I want to hear you say more about how you connected this uh, what's in the book to the idea of breath and God's yes. breath and your breath. I want to hear more about that. Definitely. As many of us watched the nine minutes that George Floyd was slowly expiring, he said a few things. He said, I can't breathe. And he also called for his mother. So the language of breath coming from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and the idea of theopneustis, meaning God breathed. I remember looking at this moment where I see this Black man dying and I'm thinking, God is not breathing in this moment, just as George Floyd is not breathing. I can't, Mm. I can't feel Mm. God's breath in this Mm. moment as well. And so as I began to allude to second Timothy chapter three, I was thinking about how the biblical text with the spirit, which we understand as a ruach wind in Hebrew Bible, or just a, a, a feminine spirit that moves in New Testament. Well, it's actually neuter now, but I'm still connecting the feminine of ruach because that's feminine in the Hebrew Bible. That calling for one's mother mm. is also related to the idea of the feminine and what the feminine spirit can actually do in Mm. comfort and creation. And so I really imagined God's breath being stifled in that moment of George Floyd's murder. And it almost felt as though the whole world's breath was stifled because immediately after that, we had protests all over the globe. That's right. And it was almost as if the world held its breath just to see if he's going to take his knee off of his neck, correct? We're all holding our breaths. That's right. And then collectively. And then afterwards, just that, that, ah, that rage that occurred. Yeah. Which then creates the movements of people around the globe. As a womanist New Testament scholar, I'm constantly thinking about how the experiences of Black women, hence George Floyd's mother, whom he's calling to, how now we begin to think about Sabrina Fulton and Trayvon Martin's mother, and and just how these experiences of mother 
are also connected in some way to God as well. And so all of that is swirling around in my brain. Now, I did not get to the moment of mother as much in the book, but I begin to talk about it later on in a separate work that it will be released. I'm expecting it in my mail today. <laughs> it's an edited volume entitled Bitter the Chastening Rod that's co-edited by myself, Mitzi Smith and Erica Dunbar. And so it is a, a follow-up to the text, Stony the Road We Trod, where African-American scholars are engaging biblical texts in present right. day conversations with the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter. So in that, I begin to look at motherhood and mothering in the in, in a continuation of breathing that I've started in this book. So that's Fantastic. what I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. I love how these things are connected in your work. It's so powerful and and so uh, provocative to all of us to think differently about how we read. And it makes me want to hear more what about what you hope uh, readers will uh, do, how they will respond to what you have written, what you hope they will be empowered to do. Yes, I hope a few things. I hope that readers are empowered to actually begin to take the Bible seriously. Seriously, seriously, seriously. Not this surface level reading, but actually taking seriously the context in which our biblical texts come up. Because the Genesis context is very different than a Revelation context. And so when we lump all of the biblical texts together and think of them as one large book, which we, we have to think of our, our Bible as a collection and take it seriously. Now that means that you don't have your Bible on your mantle in your house and you worship it as an idol. It actually means that you read it and study it and take it seriously to the point where you begin to understand the context, the varying contexts that are found within the text. And only then will we be able to almost rightfully nuance the context of a Paul, for example, with our contemporary context. See, I think what's happened in a lot of fundamental and conservative evangelical thinking is that we hold to this idea of the entire biblical text is so unified that it becomes universal. And that idea of universality becomes equated to what I think of as white mainstream thought. And so if my experience as an African-American woman is different than the experience of a white male, then my experience is discounted because the white male experience becomes the universal for reading biblical text. And I say, I think that a lot of more evangelical conservative scholars would read Bible and say, I'm reading it for everybody, but you're only reading it for a particular cultural group. Right. Yeah. And so that's what I hope people begin to engage with and, and really think through. Yeah. I think your point about this being something that has to be re, uh, reconceptualized, retaught, reimagined in each generation is so important mm -hmm. because when you're talking, I'm thinking, yeah, we were saying all those things when I was in seminary. So not as clearly about uh, the black and brown bodies. We were talking about bodies that identify as women uh, yes. being left out of the reading. That was 
where my educational edge was, you know, mm-hmm. so it, it's so amazingly important and helpful to have you rearticulating this again, along with other scholars about mm-hmm. this, how do we really make space for everyone to read the Bible and be seen in the right. Bible? Exactly. Um, really critical. And when that comes again, by circling back to our, the theory, the idea of authority that we were talking about earlier. Um, and I wanted to ask you to, um, you know, say, tell us again about your, the differences you see between something being authoritative and being authoritarian. Or, you know, you talked about fundamentalism and white supremacy having its hands around yes. your neck. And, mm-hmm. and how do you still see authority without choke the chokehold? Right. <laughs> I want to hear you say more about that because I think that's such powerful uh, piece of what your book gives us. I appreciate that. For me, and here's the thing, I'm still very much a preacher. So mm-hmm. I go places and I preach. And I often think about my preaching as another social justice, another piece of my own social justice activism. And I think about my preaching as a way to begin to engage specifically predominantly white congregations with Mm. alternative readings of biblical text. And Mm. so I often say that even though I'm preaching, I'm allowing you to step into the conversation that I'm having with the Bible. And to see what my conversation is with the biblical text that may be slightly different than your conversation with the biblical text. And so I try to frame the language of preaching over in opposition to conversations with. And Mm -hmm. that preaching over tends to be a preacher saying this is the one interpretation that you should follow regarding this biblical text as opposed to what do conversations with the text look like? And I find that in conversations with the text, I am still allowing the text to be authoritative over me because I'm having a conversation with contemporary questions that I'm wrestling with as I'm engaging the biblical biblical text and looking to it as an authority in my life. Now, that means that the biblical text is one authority. Meaning I also have conversations with my husband when I'm having difficulties in decision-making. And it's the same thing. My husband may not necessarily make the final decision regarding something that I'm wrestling with in my life. I Then I may have a conversation with my mother about it and get an opinion there. Now, I can only go to about two to three. That's about enough. Because once you start talking to too many people, then you're going to be all muddied. So don't do too that. Too many opinions. <laughs> you're right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And so I like the language of conversations with as opposed to authoritarian preaching over because it does allow true conversations with us as developing humanity, because we're all developing humanity as we grow and move in our own life and our own life cycles. And so I I think I really like that language of conversations with as an authority in my life, as opposed to someone else's authoritarian pronouncement over my life. And uh, you've got excellent questions and insights, and we've just been delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much. (laughs)
Yes, indeed. And uh, friends, we want to leave you with a question as we depart today. Um, and that question is about how you're going to read uh, from an embodied and relational perspective the texts that you're preparing for worship this week or preaching, uh, if you're studying, if you're just um, leading a Bible study, whatever it is you're doing, we want you to think about how are you reading that text uh, from an embodied and relational perspective. So here's the question we'll leave you with and uh, hope to see you next week on Lunchtime Live.